Now we're in for a really proper race with some of the front runners starting a long way down the field with Max Verstappen in 14th. I still think he's a big threat in this Grand Prix. Max had a good start, was already up into 10th. Look at Max, Max and Charles Leclerc battling side by side. Max Verstappen making up more ground and I think he's taking 8th place on the opening lap. That just shows how well it's going for Max Verstappen. It's an absurd pace. The Dutch fans go crazy as Max Verstappen once again takes the lead of the Belgian Grand Prix. I can't remember watching a race in the dry where one driver had so much more pace in hand than everyone else in the field, including his teammate. It is Max Verstappen who takes victory at the Belgian Grand Prix, his ninth win of the season. Ah, amazing Sunday, guys. <laughs> Car was a rocketship all weekend, unbelievable. His second hat-trick of victories in the 2022 season. Well, 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 what a dominant performance by Max Verstappen and Red Bull. I can't think of a more dominant race weekend from Max himself. Uh, let's talk about it. I've got a very international cast once again to talk through it all. Former F1 driver Mark Sura is with me and Michael Schmidt from Auto Motor and Sport. Guys, it's brilliant to have you with us. Can you think of a more dominant Max Verstappen performance in Formula One? Not a more dominant Verstappen, but we've seen these kinds of dominance with Michael Schumacher, obviously at his best Ferrari times, with Sebastian Vettel in the second half of the season 2013, and also with Lewis Hamilton, of course, in one of these years when he seems to become every time world champion. Now, Mark, is it track specific or do you think Red Bull can carry this level of performance forward for the rest of the season? Well, after he won in Budapest, which is a track which the Red Bull doesn't perform very well, it's a bit worrying. But I think that car is very good on fast tracks. Max Verstappen was in a super form. It reminded me of the last year race in uh, Sao Paulo with uh, Lewis Hamilton doing more or less the same, you know, driving through the field as they don't exist. Do you think everybody was caught out by Red Bull's pace here, specifically Ferrari? Well, I think you, they could feel that already uh, in qualifying or in the free practice. I think the car just fitted this track very well. I thought it may be because of the cold weather, but <laughs> the hot weather today didn't help. So what are they going to be doing back in Maranello, Michael? Uh, slightly panicking ahead of Monza, I guess. Yeah, I think Monza will be another tough one for Ferrari. Uh, I don't know whether they are panicking. I think they, they know pro probably pretty well why they were underperforming here or why Red Bull was overperforming. Maybe even the two reasons. Um, for sure, this circuit helps Red Bull because it's a, a, a circuit which asks for efficiency and Red Bull has shown on many circuits this year where you need efficiency that they're a little bit ahead of Ferrari. Here they had been a lot ahead of Ferrari and I think that is the question Ferrari has to answer. Why it was such a big gap? I don't want to pour cold water on this, guys, but with the regulation stability that we've got until the end of 2025, does this put... Red Bull in the pound seat until then? Are we talking seasons of dominance now? No, I don't think so. I think this, these rules are very, very young. Apparently, there were two teams who understood it quite well right from the beginning. And, and now we have one race where Ferrari was really off the pace. So you have to assume that on other circuits, Ferrari will be closer. There's obviously one question mark is 
this TD which came here, which forced maybe the one or the other to set up the cars a little bit different, whether this has an influence. I think we only will find out after Zandvoort, Monza, and maybe even Singapore, when we have a string of races, if Red Bull is all the time that dominant, then we have to worry. Well, Carlos Sainz was asked that very question in the press conference after the race, and he said no. His feeling was that the TD that's come into effect here has made no difference at all. Well, I would say the same, but there is one special thing about Spa-Francorchamps, which is a rouge, and it, as it turned out here, uh, two other corners. You have to set your car higher. That has nothing to do with these ground effect cars. It had, it was the case already in the past. And uh, Andrew Shovlin from Mercedes told me this morning it's five to six millimeters. So it's, it's not nothing, it's quite a lot. And some cars are happier in that uh, range of right height than others. That's for sure. And maybe the Red Bull, or I'm sure the Red Bull was very happy. And um, it showed already, it was shown already at, in the first half of the season that high right heights, Red Bull doesn't care too much, whereas others, they have their problems. That's a really good point. Now, this, the, all this chat of porpoising, Mark, I mean, I'm guessing you know all about this from your Formula One career. I mean, the FIA have inst- introduced the, the, the changes for safety reasons. What are your memories of porpoising? Yeah, it always hurts one more than the other. And uh, uh, I was wondering, for example, why Mercedes performed so bad. Maybe it has something to do with that as well, because uh, they were complaining about the cold tires and now it was warm and they didn't go any faster. So maybe they're suffering more than the other teams. We'll come on to Mercedes in a minute. I did just want to get your thoughts, Mark, on um, Max Verstappen and the way he's driving at the minute. Having won that world championship last year, do you feel we're seeing a different man this season? Definitely. If you watch the first lap, he was so careful. I mean, not the Max Verstappen from last year, which overtakes if there is only the space for half a car. No, he was really careful. He knows he has the best car and he has is patient to wait. And he was patient as well in the last race in Hungary when, when he was winning from 10 position. So it's a different max we've seen this year. So look, what about Ferrari's weekend? Okay, the performance wasn't there. We've established that, but there were still mistakes on the pit wall. Yes, absolutely. I mean, the, the last pit stop was unnecessary because they must have calculated that it will be very close for Charles Leclerc coming out in front of Alonso. And then everybody knew it takes half a, half a lap until the tyres are up to temperature, knowing Alonso that he would attack if he sees a chance. So the target to do the fastest lap was already ruined by Alonso overtaking Charles, even if Charles a lap later re-overtook him. And, and let's face it, was he, at, was he ever actually going to get fastest lap, even if it had been a clean lap? I don't think so. I think it was seven tenths or something like that missing to Max Verstappen's lap. I think it was a mission impossible. Mark, the Ferrari pit wall? I noticed today that they keep asking the driver, this is something new. They keep, both drivers keep asking, what tyres do you want? We are, you know, like like we are serving you. And uh, yes, the mistake was uh, to come in 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 one lap to go for the soft tyres. If you plan that, I mean, the, the soft tyres are good enough for three fast laps. So you, you put him in one lap before, so it'll be safe. If Alonso overtake him, he has the chance to overtake him and still have a clear lap. So, yeah, that was a big mistake again. Why the questions to the drivers? Does it show a lack of harmony, a lack of faith? I think what happened before, because especially in Hungary, when Leclerc said, why did they give me the hard tyres? I think now they decided to talk to the driver before they decide. But uh, yeah, the mistakes are still there. And what about 
Checo's performance this weekend. I was surprised by the gap because he's always been pretty good here. Yeah, but you have to you you, you can see since quite a while that uh, the gap between Max Verstappen and, and Perez becomes the same like it was in the past. The first five or six races it was different. Perez was much closer, but in the first five or six races, uh, the car, the Red Bull was not yet suited to what Max likes. There was one problem: the car was too much understeering. And that helps Perez, but that uh, screws a little bit uh, uh, Max Verstappen. And then step by step, the Red Bull became a real Red Bull again, where you have a loose rear end, but uh, Max Verstappen doesn't care about it. He wants to have a car which, which turns in sharp, which reacts on, on each uh, uh, you know, uh, input on the steering wheel. But I have to say, in the beginning of the season, I think we didn't see the maximum of Max I think Max could not perform as good as he wanted to because the car didn't do what he wanted. Now he get the car doing what he wants. So he improved. I think Checo is still on the same level, but the Max improved a lot. It's fascinating, isn't it? This to and fro and how you deal with your teammates. I mean, do you think Checo really understands now that he's, he's a supporting role. He's 91 points behind Max in the World Championship. Eight races to go. I remember this year. I mean, he's been asking why he has to let the other one go. And he was really thinking he has a chance. But now with the form Max is in, he realized, I think, he is the number two and he will accept this role for sure. Let's talk about Mercedes. We are in the paddock. We are outside their motorhome looking at quite a loud sticker on the side of the motor. I'm celebrating 55 years of AMG. Michael, for our listeners who don't know what AMG is, very quickly. Well, it's a sporty department of, of, of Mercedes. So if you wanted to have a, a, a Mercedes, which you can buy from Mercedes, a little bit more, more horsepower, you know, I don't know, a stiffer uh, suspension, then you went to AMG. I think that, that was the reason why they had been founded. And special livery this weekend to celebrate that. But Sadly, they weren't celebrating an upturn in performance. And I, for one, after Hungary, thought, OK, game on. We've got six cars challenging for the win at Spa. And, well, we only had, <laughs> we only had one car, actually, <laughs> and that was Max. But were you surprised that Mercedes couldn't get it together this weekend? To that extent, yes. I, I, I was not surprised that uh, Red Bull was faster. And, and, and I also thought that Ferrari would be faster. We, we could see this, pat this pattern. Mercedes did progress. And when a step back, progress, a step back. Barcelona, they were good. The race is after, a step back. Same with Silverstone and the race is after Silverstone. Now we had Hungary, the race after Hungary. So it goes up and down that shows that they still have not yet understood their car fully. So we go to Zandvoort next weekend. And do you think there's a chance they could be competitive? I think so, yes. It's a slower circuit. Then obviously the temperature uh, plays a role. And, uh, uh, and that could play into their cards. Ah, but Michael, the temperature plays a role, we thought. But as Mark touched on a little bit earlier, much hotter conditions here on race day, yet they were still slow. They were slow uh, versus uh, Verstappen, but they were pretty close to Ferrari, which they weren't yesterday. I mean, yesterday was also a gap of six or seven tenths to the best Ferrari. So George Russell, Mr. Consistent, brings it home P4. Lewis Hamilton, Mark, got involved in, what should we call it, a fracker with Fernando Alonso on the opening lap. What was your take on what happened up at Lecom? It was completely unnecessary because we've seen so many overtaking in this corner. If you watch the Formula 2 race, they kept overtaking on the outside. And it's so easy because after is a left hand, it's, it's like an S. 
So if you go on the outside, you leave the other one room and because it's the left-hand corner coming, you win anyway. So why, why Luis pulled in and, and squeezed uh, Alonso onto the curb, I don't understand. I think he just misjudged it. I cannot understand why he did it. He said in the pen during the race that Alonso was in his blind spot. But I mean, Lewis, this is not his first rodeo, is it? No, but I think I, I, what I like uh, with Lewis is that he's honest. He, he was honest when he uh, I had the collision with Albon in uh, Brazil. I think he immediately said it was my fault. And again, he said here it was my fault. Other drivers would have maybe would have looked for an excuse. Totally agree with you mm. on the honesty. But do you think it's something about Alonso that just brings out the red mist? And I don't know, just because you're right. I always think Lewis, his spatial awareness and car positioning is usually the best in the field. So for him to make that mistake makes me think, why is it because it's Alonso, the old adversary? Well, I would say it was rather the, 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 the moments before this overtaking because Alonso was moving twice or was changing tw twice the line and uh, uh, first he went to the inside then a little bit to the outside. So maybe Lewis was a bit too emotional and, and said to himself, I got to get this guy here. Mark, what do you feel is going on inside Lewis Hamilton's head at the minute with regards car performance, his future? We're going to come on to the driver market in just a minute, but do you think he's still in love with this as much as he always was? Or at some point, is the lack of performance going to make him think about doing other things? I don't think so. I think now after this season, he cannot stop racing. He could have done last year, but now he cannot because he has to show that he gets through that and start winning again, and then he can retire. But he will not give up in this situation, because now he's a Russell which performs better most of the time, and uh, he wants to go back winning and then on the podium say, OK, that's it, guys. Very quickly, we have been interrupted by one of the stars of the show today, Alex Albon. What a br another brilliant race by you. Thank you very much. I feel like I've been on this show a few times now. I think we're your lucky mascot, really. Uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, speaking of good, it was a really good race, actually. It was, um, it feels good because it's the pressure, the pressure of like, just keeping everyone behind. It was a uh, lap after lap. Yeah. And, and we didn't have the pace today. You know, we, we, we did in qualifying yesterday, but today was a different story. Um, I could tell, well, we could tell after a few laps that it was going to be a tricky race because we are slippery. That's partly why we were good on uh, Saturday. But also, when you're quick on the straights, it, it tends to mean you slide around a bit more <laughs> in the corners and, and that's the low downforce for you. So um, the tyres were, were screaming lap after lap. And uh, yeah, it was a, we call it squeaky bum time. <laughs> Do you know what? I thought you were brilliant throughout, but just right at the end there when... Stroll came out of the pits. Did you just get off the gas a little bit so that Latifi could then overtake him? I thought, just, you're thinking of everything. Well, not that. Basically what we were doing was, uh, firstly I had to give, make sure Nicky had the slipstream coming out the pit exit so he could defend from Stroll. But then our, really the, the, the main uh, trick was to set up the car for one corner. So we changed the, the front wing and, and basically put some, some downforce into the make the car sharper on the nose um, basically so that we were good in one corner because you only need to be good in turn one to keep someone behind and uh, it did hurt us a little bit for the rest of the lap but because we got away with turn one being quick that was all we needed and uh, 
I didn't expect there to be 10 cars behind, but uh, but yeah, we, we, we kept the kept Lance back just purely from turn one, so yeah. Sensational, and I guess hopeful for Monza. There we go. I mean, we're at Zandvoort next, <laughs> but you're hopeful for Zandvoort. You have to be hopeful for everything, but um, I mean, Zandvoort, we've got to look at first, but yes, you are right. And, and that, honestly, that's also where, where our head is at. You know, we, we might struggle a bit in, uh, in Zandvoort, but on paper, you know, Monza should suit us. So, uh, yeah, let's see. Brilliant job. Well done. He's good, isn't he? Yeah, it was fantastic. I mean, it was better in, in the cold temperature, I think. His car worked better in the last two days than today. But still, he did a fantastic job today of defending himself. I think he could mould Williams into being his team. He's just re-signed. I think it was multi-year, wasn't it? You know, he's, he's the main man there. Absolutely, he's doing a, a, a fantastic season and giving probably Williams more than the, the car deserves. And he's he's um, using his chances. He had three chances and all, all these three chances he turned into points. Uh, you have to say today, as you said, fantastic race. Uh, five people behind him for I don't know how many laps and uh, all over the place. But he kept it quiet and he did a fantastic job. And I was told, for example, that uh, Piastri, because uh, Alpine wanted to park Piastri at Williams and he didn't want to drive at Williams because he was a little bit afraid that the the, um, the battle against uh, Albon could turn out not so positive for him. So let's look down the order. Fernando Alonso, P5, the old dog. He's got wind in his sails, hasn't he, with that new probably quite lucrative deal at Aston Martin. Um, another great performance. Yes, I expected even a little bit more. I, I, You're a hard taskmaster, yeah, Mr. Steer. The car was uh, very good on the straight, and so I, so I thought uh, he can really fight against uh, the Ferraris because of the, of the top speed. But uh, then in the end, I think it's, it's a fantastic result, and Ocon came from the back. Uh, which was also quite impressive. So the, the Alpine was impressive, I would say. And Alonso, you can just trust him. He will do the job. When the car belongs to fourth position, he will finish fourth or he finish fifth, whatever the car can do. Yes, I have to say, I mean, again, this race showed how what his race skills are. When, when, when you look, he's fast when he needs to be fast and he goes slow when, when he can afford to be slow. You could see in the last stint, I mean, he had a very long stint. I think he uh, pitted in lap 25, if I'm right. So that was a very long stint compared to Vettel and to Ocon, who were in his back and who were really his rivals. And then, you know, he had the nerves to go a little bit slower to keep his tires alive. When Ocon was catching up, I think from seven or eight seconds, to, down to two and a half or three, then all of a sudden he picked up pace again. So you have to have that, you know. That he thinks of everything. He thinks of everything, yeah. Do you think that if Alonso was in a, in a race-winning car, he could still win the World Championship? Yeah, 100%. For me, he's still the best. Still the best yeah. on the grid? On the grid. Ahead of Verstappen? Ahead of Verstappen, because he has every, he, he is good in all disciplines. Mark? That's a bit too much. Is it better, <laughs> better as Verstappen or... or uh, Lewis Hamilton is not, but he is fighting. But I think he he lost a bit of his poor speed, and this is just the age. But in the race, you don't feel it. But I think uh, the age will eat on him. Without the collision with Hamilton on lap one, what could he have done today? I mean, he was P2 at the time. 
Uh, yeah, but I think he was not able to keep the Ferrari behind as Leclerc was showing in the end. And obviously, uh, I mean, the speed of the Ferrari was still much better than the one of the Alpine. And, and you could see whenever somebody caught up on Alonso and he knew I'm not going to win that fight. He let him pass without any defense because he knew I'm only screwing my tires if I start really fighting for it. Let's talk about another multiple world champion who in the story, the narrative of 2022 is quite heavily linked with Alonso. Sebastian Vettel's retiring, Alonso's replacing him. And I thought we saw a more racy Vettel today than we've seen in a long time. Yeah, especially in the first lap. I mean, he, yeah, he came out of nowhere P10? and all of a sudden he was in the starts, top 10. Yeah. Starts P10. Yeah. And then where was he at one point? Up to sort of challenging for P4 exactly, or something? Yeah, yeah something like that. It was unbelievable. And, but he knows that this Aston Martin is a very good race car, actually. It's, it's just not good in, in, in qualifying. And, uh, and for him, the first lap is really important to have a good race. Because once he's in the top 10, then he can fight for, for the positions. But when you start in P18, have a bad first lap, and you are still 18 or 17, then it's very difficult to, to move forward. Michael, when you have a performance like that from Vettel, do you think there's any bit of him that's going, oh, I could do with more than eight races, eight uh, more races? I think not now. We might feel that maybe in a year's time. What do you think, Mark? I think you will get bored <laughs> when he retires. It's, it's very early to retire for him. And, and he is still, yeah, as we can see today, uh, he's still hot, you know, he loves racing. But of course, I mean, he loves racing for, for positions. He would love to race for wins. And he knows this chance is not there anymore. So I think he's right to retire. And now look, one other guy we haven't talked about in the top 10, Pierre Gasly. A tremendous race, actually, because he was at the back at one point. It's been a difficult year for Alpha Tauri, hasn't it? Talk about fluctuations in form from Mercedes. Well, I think it's even more exaggerated with them. Yeah, I think probably the task to build a car to completely new regulations was a, a, a step too far. I mean, before, the, the two seasons before, they kept building up on a car they knew. But now, you know, if you have complete new regulations, you can see experience paid off. I mean, Adrian Newey, obviously, in the end, his team, he and his team, they built the best car. And there's for sure always one reason, because Adrian knew these, these ground effect cars from 40 years ago, and he had an idea of purposing, which nobody had at the time. He didn't know, he told me once, he, he knows that this can happen, but he, he obviously didn't reckon that's that bad, talking about the beginning of the season. And I think a young team like Alfa Tori, they're just thrown into cold water, and then now they see how difficult it is. Right. now. Guys, explain one thing to me. Why were McLaren off the pace this weekend? I think nobody knows that. I, this car seems to work on one track and doesn't work on the other track. But why? If I, if I would know that, I would have a job at McLaren for sure. <laughs> I mean, you know, Norris quick over, over one lap again, but obviously the power unit penalties. I mean, God, the whole the barrage of power unit penalties that came this weekend. But I thought he'd, I thought Norris would fight through more effectively than he did. Yeah, I thought so too, uh, after seeing the lap times in, 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 in practice and qualifying. But, you know, with McLaren, one thing is the car is not very efficient. That has been the whole, whole year the case, the, uh, which is not so good here in Spa as we saw on, on other cars as Just well. Just too draggy. Yeah, too draggy. And, uh, and the second thing is, when you look at the story of McLaren this year, whenever they brought a big upgrade, and here they had again a big upgrade, I think eight points, they had modifications. The first race was always 
not very impressive. Then they started to learn about it and then they were getting better. So expect them to get stronger. Yeah. Yeah, okay. All right, that's the race. So much else has gone on this weekend. Let's start by talking about the driver silly season. I can't keep up with it. But uh, Daniel Ricciardo, I saw a very broken man on on Thursday. And it's funny, isn't it? You see, you know, Vettel's leaving at the end of the year, still so punchy in the race today. I thought Daniel looked very sad. It is sad. You know, I, I was a big fan of him. I think he did the best overtaking in Formula One in the last few years. He could overtake somebody even if, if he was 20 meters or 50 meters behind. He still could outbreak somebody and take the corner. It was unbelievable. And he lost that. So Why? Why has he lost it? I think he, he just had not the confidence in the car. Mm. And I think now the modern cars more and more tend to, to be pointy, you know, to have a, a, a quick turn in. And maybe he cannot do what he did before because the car gets too nervous when he tried to do that. And I think he lost the confidence. I cannot explain it different. And do you think the team could have done more to, to develop the car in his direction? I think then you have to change the aerodynamics if you want to do that. That means you have to build the car for him and not just a setup. This is this is a basic now and all the cars all the fast cars have this tendency to turn in quick a car who turns in quick Max Verstappen proves it if it turns in quick he is uh, you cannot beat him and some other teams have exactly the same this is now the new way to set up a car and obviously the driving style of Ricciardo is not for that do you think this news was a surprise to him Michael no, I don't think so. I think they prepared him quite well. I mean, he felt that something is wrong. And then I, I believe what McLaren said that since the last month, they were telling him, listen, the painting is on the wall. And if you don't perform, uh, we will separate. I think McLaren can rest easy that they've done everything that they can, which brings us on to the future. Um, we're speaking on Sunday night, of course. Monday, the Contract Recognition Board uh, is meeting to discuss the validity of Oscar Piastri's contracts, one with Alpine, one with McLaren. If it decides in McLaren's favour, what do you think of that Norris Piastri lineup for 2023? We all say, okay, he won the Formula 3 in the first season, Formula 2 in the first season. I don't know who was the last one who did it uh, so quickly. So on the paper, he's a future superstar. And if he proves that on the, on the track, it will be incredible, this, this battle with Norris. On the other hand, there's a lot of pressure now on Piastri. Now he doesn't have time anymore. He a uh, 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 time to let's say start easily into Formula One. He has to perform from day one. Yeah, he's got With nowhere to hide, has he? Yeah, nowhere he, to hide. Exactly. And how good is Lando Norris? How how, how difficult a task is it going to be for Piastri if he is in that second McLaren next year? Lando Norris is for me somebody who started on a high level and improved year for per year. He got better and better. I think he is on a very very high level. I think he's ready to be a world champion from his performance. So it will be very, very difficult. But remember, there was a Lewis Hamilton coming and, and joining uh, Fernando Alonso. And what happened? This is undoubtedly a risk for McLaren, isn't it? It is. But mm. he could turn out to be mm. the next Lewis Hamilton. And I guess that is what they're, they're banking on. Obviously, because, I mean, they could have carried on with Daniel Ricciardo another year and the, the chances that Daniel comes back to the old form were very, very slim. So 
they have to take the risk, you know? Otherwise, there's nobody else on the market who could replace, from the experienced drivers, who could replace uh, Ricciardo and giving them a, a better performance. So I think it's worth to take the risk. Right, guys, I'm going to play devil's advocate now uh, with Piastri and say, why do you think Piastri wanted to go to McLaren in that performance-wise, the team is very similar to Alpine? If he'd gone to Alpine, he would have had Esteban Ocon alongside him. Difficult to say how that would have panned out, but you could argue quite strongly, I think, that maybe Piastri could have stacked up quite well against him. Less pressure, perhaps. Why do you think Piastri's gone McLaren, not Alpine? Well, we, we first we don't know, is it really his wish or is it the wish of his manager? Maybe the manager sees better chances at McLaren long-term than, than at Alpine. That's the first thing, and... Uh, the second thing, maybe McLaren pays him better. <laughs> What's your assessment, Alpine or McLaren for Piastri? I think the decision was made the moment Alonso will stay with Alpine. So there was no chance for drive for them. So it's either you go, you go and drive for Williams for one year or you can drive a McLaren. So you take the McLaren and then this happened with... Uh, with uh, the move of uh, Alonso. So I think it decided before Alonso left. That's very interesting, isn't it? And he's going to be up against Norris in his fifth year in the team. You know, when we, we, when we compare Lewis Hamilton and, and Fernando Alonso at McLaren, that was Alonso's first year in the team. Mm -hmm. exactly. Whereas Piastri's going into a team where Norris has been there this will be, it'll be his fifth season. He's got his feet well and truly under the table. Yeah, it's, I, 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 I think for Piastri it will be a very tough first season. And as I said, there's, people will, will ask for performance right from the first moment with the history behind it. Because if somebody has the balls to say, OK, I have a contract or I had a contract with, with Alpine, which is not a bad team, but I go to McLaren and I say publicly, I'm not driving for this Alpine. Everybody thought he has a contract. Well, These people must perform. <laughs> well, this is going to drag on nicely into Zandvoort next weekend because it takes, I think, up to three days for the, the CRB to make their decision, which leads us to Thursday, which happens to be the interview day there. So we can all talk about it again uh, next weekend in Holland. If Piastri goes to McLaren, what does Alpine do next with their lineup for 23? Well, there's not much left, to be honest. They might take Gasly, and uh, according to Helmut Marko, if Gasly gets a proper offer, they probably would let him go. Do you think Ocon and Gasly would work well together? No, no. <laughs> Two <laughs> French. Two French together. And I cannot work. I think they have already a history. Uh, mm. They've been racing against each other. No, no, it will not work well. But Alpine should not matter. You know, for them it should not matter if they like each other or not. We had uh, Prosten as well in the same team. For me, after what happened, I think Alpine can could take uh, Jack Tuan or somebody, you know, like an uh, upcoming star. Maybe we have a surprise. Do you think Jack Tuan could step into the Alpine in 2023? I just watch him in Formula 2 and I think he improved a lot. So he is on a good way. Undoubtedly. I mean, he won the feature race in Formula 2 here at Spa this weekend. He is, he's on a very sharp upward trajectory, but... Again, it would be a risk, wouldn't it? McLaren are taking a risk on Piastri. Will Alpine take a risk on Jack Doohan? As, as I'm talking, Max Verstappen, our race winner, is walking past, surrounded by lots of fans, lots of photographers. He is so relaxed, damn it, isn't he? Yeah, obviously he has every reason to be relaxed in his situation. has the best car and the, the, the second championship is just in front of him. 
He's got one hand on it. Maybe one and a half hands on it now, hasn't he? Yeah. On that championship trophy. Last news story, guys. And I'm going to start with you, Mark. Audi. Big announcement on Friday. They're coming in as a power unit supplier. We all think they're going to go with Sauber as well. The announcement's going to come later in the year. As our Swiss correspondent here on F1 Nation, Mark, uh, what's your read on the whole thing? Yeah, it's, it's uh, the news we were expecting, but uh, it's nice to hear. And it, it's, it's fantastic to see that, that now suddenly we will have three manufacturers from Germany. Because uh, there is a fight between Audi and Porsche. It was already in Le Mans. I mean, the two from the Volkswagen group fighting each other is a bit strange. What's strange in Le Mans, now they come in Formula 1 and do the same again. So I think this will be very interesting and I hope it will keep up the interest in Germany. We have no more German drivers. I mean, Mick is, has a Swiss passport. No? Mick is a Swiss. Did you know that? <laughs> <Is> that what, <laughs> as our in-house German, Michael, yeah. do you agree with this Mick Schumacher having a Swiss passport? Well, I think in Germany he's seen as a German, yeah, but... <laughs> What does that mean? You know, Jochen Rindt was seen as a German, although he was Austrian, but he was born in Germany. So he's more German for sure than Nico Rosberg. <laughs> yeah, OK. Now, do we think Audi have the expertise to come in here in 26 and get the job done? You know what I like? They stop everything else and concentrate on Formula One. And this is what you have to do. Formula One is a big, big step. And I, OK, they have the experience with... Uh, hybrid uh, cars from Le Mans but still I mean they want to concentrate on Formula One and I think this is a good approach so I believe they will do well. My question to you Michael is are they going to be making it 10% harder for themselves locating in Switzerland? I mean look at Mercedes it's not a coincidence that they went with a British team and they HPP is based in England as well. Yeah but you know these German companies companies have kind of arrogance uh, a, a kind of an arrogance. They say, we can do it in Germany. We did it in Le Mans. We can do it also in Formula One. And, you know, don't underestimate this um, this project they had in Le Mans. It was from, for example, from the software, because it was a hybrid drive train as well. In terms of software, it was much more sophisticated than this one because they didn't have any rules. There was no MC, uh, MCU from uh, DFI uh, uh, regulating the most things. It was an open software. So they could do things you are not even allowed in, in Formula One. So don't underestimate. I think there's a lot of expertise there, both on the combustion side and on the electric side. I didn't realize until the announcement on Friday that Marcus Juisman, the CEO of Audi, the big chief, actually is a massive Formula One fan. And he worked with BMW when exactly. they were at Sauber back in, yeah. the, in the early noughties. Yeah. He's a petrol head. And are they the sort of company that will stick with it until they win? I think so, yes, because they have proved it in other uh, championships as well, whether it was Rally, Formula E, I think they won. Uh, then obviously in Le Mans they won. Do you think there'll be a German driver driving an Audi Formula One car up? They have to start the project uh, supporting young drivers. You know, uh, Academy for young drivers like Ferrari does, like Alpine does. That's the way to do it. They have to start from the bottom. And now, because all the... the, the Formulas for, for young drivers are too expensive. They have to start quite from the bottom. They have to start in karting, supporting driver, like uh, Richard Mill for Ferrari. They, they pick up karting drivers and, and support them. And I think if they do a program like this, they will bring up a lot of German drivers. But it will take a while. 
Well, from one driver to another, I caught up with Alan McNish just after the announcement on Friday. Alan, of course, three-time Le Mans winner, but twice with Audi. There's not much he doesn't know about what's going on. Quite often I've heard the rumours of uh, Audi's entry to Formula One, and there were a few times I think it got very close, but ultimately it didn't quite happen. But I think now is the right time to enter because you've got uh, the new regulations coming up which are quite a change there's a big increase in the electrification which fits very well into the strategy with the road car division um, which is a very important thing for us because at the end of the day that's uh, it's an engineering-led company in principle and so therefore that association is important uh, the whole sustainability aspect to it with the fuels as well has got another link but there's one other factor. I think actually Formula One now and in the last couple of years has got a clear direction. It's got a position, it's got emotion, it's got passion about it as well. And ultimately it's on, I would say, a positive trajectory. And so when you put all of those factors together, uh, then I think the set of regulations, the cost call cost-controlled regulations and uh, also just I would say the feel-good factor that it's got right now is a perfect time to enter in 2026. So the announcement at Spa this weekend is as a power unit supplier in 26. Do you think they'll want their own team? Well there's many ways to look at this and that's uh, something that you'll have to wait and see a wee bit Tom on but uh, clearly uh, you know the power unit is uh, the area where the regulations have came out at the moment and that's exactly what we've 100% committed to and uh, the next part of it uh, then we'll see before 2026 won't we? Look Alan tell us a bit more about Audi's racing division the DNA for racing that exists inside Audi I mean First of all, how central is racing to Audi? Well, as I said, Audi historically is a technically led company. And uh, in that respect, it's got very, very close links from a motorsport perspective to the technical department of it. Ollie Hoffman, who was here, um, who was part of uh, the proceedings this weekend, is the chief technical officer. And I've seen him at so many racing circuits. And he's got a drive and a passion behind it. Marcus Dusman, the CEO, has been involved in this Formula One paddock before. And so, therefore, they've got, I would say, it running through their veins. And that's always a very positive thing. But even in... Audi history, uh, they have, I would have said, always been trying to break new ground. You know, I know from my experience as a driver with them, but through the Le Mans program, we were always trying to find new innovative solutions. And uh, that was something that could only be found in motorsport. And so the DNA was very, very linked between the two of them. And this is just the next extension step. I wouldn't say it's a step, it's an extension of uh, that particular part of it because it's always been one of the ones that brings an emotion, a passion, but it brings a technical requirement. And ultimately, you know, they like to find solutions. Right. The brand has had so much success in motorsport, in in rallying, in in Le Mans, 13 Le Mans wins, two of them with you, of course. Uh, Then there's all sorts of other stuff with most recently Formula E. How much of a step up is Formula One going to be for them? Well, I think you've got two things. Formula One is definitely the pinnacle in so many different ways. You look at it from a championship point of view, there's uh, it's a world championship, but it's 23, probably 24, 25 races in the future. That's obviously a a, a step up Uh, when you look at it from the number of personnel when you look at it from the investment the focus the detail and also the competition in the paddock that is now and will be in the future Um, I think from a capability perspective then actually they've got very good people very good experience very very good facilities in Neuburg and to uh, I would say a lot of people that's hidden and it's a 
not a secret to us, but it's maybe a secret to the world of motorsport and certainly the world of Formula One. And so, yes, for sure, there's areas that uh, they need to, to work on um, and develop. But I think from my perspective, all the pieces and people are there to deliver. Um, but you also have to respect the competition as well because you know they've been doing this a long long time and uh, I think every time you go to a new category it's like a reset a little bit you know all the successes you were talked about that's that's history and it's a big part of the history and history is part of your future but uh, it's a reset when you go out and you have to prove it once again all right so when can we expect them to be competitive <laughs> that's a big question isn't it um, you know I, th I think Coming in with a new set of regulations, which predominantly from a power unit supply set the benchmark at zero again, allows you a little bit of uh, latitude there. However, saying that, you know, ultimately we come in wanting to be competitive straight away with the knowledge that that sometimes is possible, sometimes not possible. I'm not going to jump on that particular <laughs> one right now, Tom. But it's quite clear that we come in to, to deliver and to, to do the job. There's no question, but it's also very clear that we know exactly the challenge that's ahead of us, and it's a big, big challenge. But uh, it's one that we've decided is the right challenge for Audi at the moment. And how important are drivers to Audi? Will they have an influence over a lineup in a particular team? Drivers are important um, in racing, and as an ex-driver, I would say that they're one of the most important parts. Yeah, definitely. It. Audi's a, it's a global company. At the end of the day, it sells cars globally, it produces technology globally, it's factories globally. And so in that respect, uh, certainly its base and heart is in Ingolstadt and in Neckarzul. Uh, however, um, it's, not, it's not just a German company. Alan, many thanks. Great to hear from Alan there. I think he's going to be involved at some level, isn't he, Michael? Yeah, I think so. For sure, they take everybody they can they can take on board who has uh, knowledge and understanding of motor racing and Formula One in particular. All right, well, guys, thank you very much for your time. It's been great to go uh, through this Belgian Grand Prix weekend. We haven't got much time until the next one. Uh, what happens between now and Zandvoort for you guys? Well, I go back to Germany and we'll drive up to Zandvoort on Wednesday. I go back to Switzerland and for three days and then also Zandvoort, yeah. Final one from me. Can we get your predictions for Zandvoort? Are we going to see the level of dominance there that we've seen here at Spa? No, I think it will be closer between Ferrari and Red Bull. But uh, at the moment, Red Bull is on a run. I think they will win that as well. I mean, the track should be for Ferrari. We expected that in Hungary, but I hope they can show it in uh, Zandvoort and we need this to keep the championship a little bit longer open. A little bit longer anyway uh, and I'm hoping for Mercedes you know they were so strong in Hungary weren't they let's hope that what we've seen from them this weekend is, is just a, a little blip and they'll be back at it next weekend guys thank you very much for your time we'll of course be back with F1 Nation from uh, the Zandvoort paddock coming out next Monday but for now, thank you very much for listening. F1 Nation is produced by Formula One and Audio Boom Studios. <laughs>